I don't know why it's gonna be hard to preach today. I just wanna talk about how much God loves you right now. I really do. I, I was overwhelmed last night. I kid you not. I just, I took, this is, I don't do this normally, so I'm not boasting. This is a very rare thing for me. But last night, I was just worshiping, listening to music, singing, walking around, praying, and God was just, it was crazy, taking two hours of my time to put away the phone, to put away everything, and just to pray and worship and dwell on the word, word and listen for the Holy Spirit. And I'll be darned, like, God was moving and just, like, ministering to my heart and I was just so, in that moment, I was like, it took me like two hours. Sometimes it takes like two months, but this time it took me like two hours to start hearing from the Lord and really sensing the depths of his love and purpose and presence in my life. And my heart just broke because I think we live in even a Christian culture that's just like, we're not even getting started pursuing the deeper things of God. And that's the hope of this, this space is that we come together, whether you believe in God or not, whether you feel close to God or not, that this could be a space where there's a clear, like, gracious invitation uh, to, to receive more from the Lord and to give more to the Lord. So it's gonna be awesome. All right, I'm gonna preach. I'm gonna try. We're gonna be in Nehemiah. Uh, chapters two through four, we're gonna read a few verses. This won't be the standard, like we'll read a, a passage and I'll talk about it and um, we're gonna have a few verses to read. But just to catch us up a little bit, um, just the big picture, if you're new here, welcome. And, and we've been in the book of Nehemiah together and Nehemiah is just a story uh, about uh, this great empire called Persia. They are kind of running things at this time, most powerful empire in all the world. And one of the lands that they've taken over is the land of Israel. And one of the key cities in Israel is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's really important to Israelites. And uh, Nehemiah is this servant to the king of Persia, but Nehemiah is an Israelite, and he hears that Jerusalem has been torn down, all right? And it breaks his heart. He can't believe that this city that's so important to his people has been broken down. And so when he hears this, he begins praying to God, and then he boldly goes before King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, and he asks, would you let me return to Jerusalem? AKA, would you let me quit my job for a little bit, go to the city that, you, that, that your people have dominated and rebuild it? And somehow the king agrees to those terms. And then he gets even more bold and says, also, not only uh, do I wanna rebuild it, I don't have money for it, can you pay for it? And the king's like, sure, <laughs> sounds great. I don't know how he did that. He broke his own law when he, said, when he decided to do that. So last week we talked about, man, Nehemiah just like taking these steps of courage and boldness and God just blessing it. And now we're kind of getting to the rising action. Like, okay, Nehemiah's heart's been broken. He's repented. He's, he's come in boldness and, and requested that he can go to Jerusalem and begin the rebuilding project of the city that's so important to his life. And this week, we're gonna get into what takes place after, all right? The scene is set. He's gonna go back to Jerusalem and he's gonna start building Jerusalem again, okay? And uh, today, what we're really gonna look at is this, this idea that people that follow God, that seek the Lord, that hear from God, that follow his ways, will experience opposition, all right? Opposition, people that follow, and for your notes, I, I tried to think of something cleaner than that, I didn't, all right? But if you follow God, all right, if you're after the presence of God, you will experience opposition. And we're gonna watch Nehemiah experience opposition, and then I think we're gonna really gain some insight on how he responds to it and how the people around him respond to it. All right, so Nehemiah, he's headed out, all right? Actually, I'm gonna to go to chapter two, verse 10. We're just gonna read that verse. So Nehemiah in verses one through eight, which we covered last week, he got the okay, the green light. He's going back to rebuild, all right? Verse nine, I'm sorry. 
Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat, I think it's how you, yes, Sandbullet is the way I remembered how to say it. Um, maybe that was his nickname. Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. All right, so these two characters, as best as I know in my study and just talking to some of the other teachers this week, these two guys that are displeased with the, the thought of Jerusalem being rebuilt, they're the guys that are basically getting the sloppy seconds of Persia taking down Jerusalem, all right? Because Jerusalem's walls and gates have been stripped down, and so I guess they could benefit from going in and out of that city without having walls. Like, Jerusalem had no more protection. So these two dudes, these random dudes, are like, it really stinks that you think you're gonna rebuild Jerusalem, okay? Because they liked some of the selfish benefits that they got from having access to Jerusalem. Does that make sense? It does? Okay, great. Uh, It makes sense to me, but explaining it for whatever reason felt difficult. Okay, let's skip ahead. Um, Let's look at um, chapter four, verses one through three, uh, and then uh, verses seven through eight, all right? Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes upon it, he will break down their stone wall. So they're mocking, jeering. You know how it is when your friends are jeering at you. All right, verses seven and eight. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So what happened in between chapter two and chapter four, you can read chapter three, it's like all the details of the rebuilding that does begin taking place. So Nehemiah, he like low-key in the night, inspects all the walls, checks it all out. Then he goes to his squad in in Jerusalem and goes, look, we gotta rebuild this thing. We gotta get Jerusalem back. They're all like, okay. And then these two dudes, they get so angry. It started with kind of they're annoyed, but then they get so angry and displeased and they're like, we actually have to stop these people from rebuilding the wall. They get angry. They get so angry, they even start like building an army and threatening to attack the people of Jerusalem. In fact, they plan a sneak attack to stop this rebuilding effort, okay? So Nehemiah is experiencing some serious opposition. And I started thinking, I was wondering, you know, what, what was it like for Nehemiah after in chapter two, he was in the presence of the king, right? And he, he gets the green light and then he's headed over. And just picture this with me. It feels like that was the hard part, right? Like it, talking to the king, getting the king to approve the plan, and then he starts heading over. And I was, I was picturing him riding his donkey or horse or whatever he was riding on. Um, and, and I just pictured like he was like, man, God, this is gonna be so cool. You've given me the green light. Like, this is clearly your way. We're about to rebuild some walls, some gates. I can't wait to go to my people in Israel and go, look, I know Jerusalem's in shambles right now, but come together, we're gonna build this thing up, right? It's like ideal scenario, it's beautiful. And I, I was like, man, I bet he didn't picture the amount of opposition. I mean, like by verse 10, two verses later, we already got two characters that are so frustrated with this and that are seeking to disrupt 
this plan. And, and the thing that just, that, that just hit me is that this is such the story of the Bible, that when people seek God, when they hear from the voice of God, when they seek to be obedient to God, they experience opposition. And there's two kind of subpoints I want to talk about when we experience opposition, okay? One, opposition, all right, like what Nehemiah is experiencing with these dudes, the Israelites are experiencing, opposition is not equivalent to distance from God, all right? We're going to flesh that out. But opposition is not equivalent to distance from God. And two, expectations so often shape our experience. Expectations, the expectations we have so often shape our experience. We're gonna flesh both of those out. So first, opposition is not equivalent to distance from God. Now, opposition covers a lot of things. So we'll say spiritual opposition, opposition social opposition, physical opposition, mental, you just whatever, any opposition is not equivalent to distance from God. Now, I know in theory, um, we might accept this, especially at a place like a church, like where we believe that, you know, Jesus, son of God came, died for us, offered us life, raised again, power, we're children of God. In theory, we believe, of course, nothing can change our identity as children of God. But truthfully, at least for me, I don't know if you resonate with this. Whenever I'm experiencing opposition, that is when I feel the most distant from God. So if you're like me and you kind of ride the waves of emotion or how you're feeling that day, it's a dangerous way to live. Like one day I'm like, life is great. I'm loved by the father. (laughs) My job's going great. I'm well rested. That has nothing to do with how loved I feel by the father, right? No, it has everything to do with how loved I feel by the father, right? But I'm tired, not sure about my job. Things are kind of hard. Had a hard talk with my girlfriend, like whatever. Is God real? <laughs> I don't know. Like, honestly, let's, let's revisit that conversation again. I, I, I need to read Tim Keller, The Proof of God, or whatever that book's called. Anyway, um, what is it called? Reason for God. <laughs> Shout out Tim Keller, The Reason for God, or The Proof of God by Joshua Soloway. Um, so that, that kind of happens to me. Opposition can make me feel distant. And it really stands out to me. You know, sometimes I believe that opposition, instead of serving as like this... Uh, that it means that you're distant from God, I think so often opposition can be confirmation that you're after the heart of God. And, and this story came to mind in Matthew chapter four. All right, it's the story of Jesus. In Mark chapter one, Matthew four, Jesus has this moment where he gets baptized, all right? Goes down in the water by John the Baptist, comes out. And this voice of God speaks out. Does anyone know what that voice says? This is my son in whom I'm well Please, yeah, if you don't know, it's in Mark 1 or Matthew 4. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This amazing moment of identity. And then the very next thing that happens, this is super interesting, all right? Follow me here. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness, okay? Now, Jesus goes out there and he prays and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. How's that for fast forward, all right? He's just like icing all of us with that 40-day fast, not not eating or nothing. He's just like, I'm out here with some rocks and my, the presence of my father. That's all I need for 40 days. And I don't know how he did it, but he did it, okay? So he's out there. And now for me, I just picture like Jesus is, is with the father. He's the son of God. He's all powerful. He's like in the presence of God. I, that's just like Hillsong on steroids. Like so much worship is going down in that moment. And yet... If you read Matthew 4, who comes? What conversation do we see happening between Jesus and who? Does anyone know? Satan, the enemy. This is the moment. Now, I'm sure Jesus experienced, he certainly experiences more opposition later on. 
I'm sure there was more temptation, but here's what I do know. When Jesus was directly in the will of God, when the Spirit had led him to the wilderness, when he was praying and fasting with the Father, the enemy was at its closest. Isn't that interesting? None of us would assume that when Jesus is alone, fasting and praying, no distractions, it's just the Son of God and his Father, that he's far from God, right? We understand that's like one of the most intimate spots in Scripture, that he is with his Father. And yet at that moment, the enemy was at his closest. And I think this is important because in a culture that, that I think we, we kind of like idolize comfort and like well-being, and so when something disruptive comes, it kind of like messes with our narrative, like, God, where are you in all of this? I'm like, hey, if you're following God and you're experiencing opposition, that might just be the enemy, right? Like that might be God saying, of course, this is what's gonna happen. This is the story of the gospel. Like Jesus directly in the will of God comes to earth to save humanity. And what's he experienced? Just so much opposition. Now, I wanna say this to you because in the middle of fast forward, as we're taking these steps of obedience, like some of us are like, this is not how I thought it would be. I had someone tell me they're on day three of a total fast. And I'm like, gosh, shout out to you. That's amazing. And they're like, it's the most non-spiritual, hard three days. I'm starting to see the light, but this has been hard. And I'm like, of course, you're directly going after the Lord. (laughs) Like your physical body is rebelling against you. Like it's not cool. Where's my food? Forget prayer. Feed me, right? Like physical, like, of course there's opposite. She felt mentally attacked. She felt emotionally spent. I'm like, absolutely. Like the journey with God faces opposition, but please take heart because opposition is not equivalent with distance from God. And I'm like, man, how powerful would it be if we could like switch that around in our minds where when we start experiencing opposition, as we're trying to obey the Lord, we were like, boom, I know I'm on the right track. The enemy's fighting so hard right now. I've got to be doing something right. I feel discouraged. <laughs> like, I must be after the Lord and the enemy must be a sucker, which he is. He's a complete sucker, all right? So opposition is not equivalent to distance from God. And also, expectations really do go a long way in shaping our experience. Let me give an example of this, right? So a great movie comes out. It's based on a book that you read growing up, maybe Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, something crazy, all right? Uh, what was that one, Mockingjay? Hunger Games, um, yeah. So, you know, your expectations for a movie really define how you experience it, right? So if you go in and you're like, oh, I read the book. It really shaped me as a kid. It really did a lot for my identity. Uh, I don't know how Hunger Games would do that, but if it did it, and, and Rotten Tomatoes gave it 93%, so like, oh my gosh, best movie ever, here it comes. You go in and see it there's a good chance it's gonna be a little bit of a downer, right? Like if your expectation, unless it's like Star Wars, right? Matt, Ben and my record, Star Wars, where's you at? Yeah, shout out, Star Wars, that just exceeds them all the time. But but there's a good chance if your expectations are super high, right? Like it's hard to meet those expectations. If you go into a movie going, this thing's gonna stink, I heard it was awful, there's a good chance you'll be pleasantly surprised, right? Expectations shape your experience, it's so true. If you got on Bumble and this guy was like 6'3", athlete, Joe Sixpack, loves the Lord, gentle but strong, like all the things, I can't wait to meet him. And you go on the day and you really just got catfished, how much of a bummer that would be. It's like, why? Because your expectations were, that's my soulmate. And when the first day is awkward, you're like just so out. That's our dating culture now. It's like, it's just gotta be perfect. One awkward lap, oh, she sneezed that way. I just can't do it, right? Your expectations were out of whack. Like they were crazy, right? That can happen. And this is really important in the Christian life, okay? 
Because I think sometimes we accidentally assume that if we're following Jesus, things are just gonna be like roses and bubbles, like just clean cut, perfect, comfortable, exciting. I don't know how we do that because when you read the gospels, you get a, a very different picture of life with God. But it's important for us as Christians that we kind of have our tough skin on a little bit, right? We understand that, man, life with Jesus and the perfect truth and grace that he walks in brings about opposition. So my people following Jesus, like expect opposition, okay? Expect it to come. Expect it to sometimes feel difficult and discouraging. It's okay. But here's the hope, okay? Here's the hope of this. I want to look into how Nehemiah responds when he experiences this, okay? When he experiences his opposition. Chapter four, verse four. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. He, he keeps praying, okay? I'm just pointing out that he's praying there. Let's go to verse nine. And we pray to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Let's go to verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, all right? Remember the Lord. Nothing causes short-term or long-term memory loss like opposition. There is nothing that makes us as forgetful as opposition, right? This is the story of humans. This is not just your story. This is our story. The story of the Israelites, they're in Egypt, 400 years. God hears their cries. They literally cried out, free us. What does God do? He frees them, right? They walk out, they get a little hungry, and they go, should we go back to Egypt, though? Because there we were eating. Like, I know the whole slavery thing was hard, but, like, we have food then. And it's like, what just happened? Are we serious? Did we already forget? Like, a little bit of opposition, a little bit of difficulty, and we're all ready to call this thing quits, Right? And like, you can hear that in Nehemiah. Don't be like your great, great grandma and grandpa, right? Remember the Lord in this moment. I think about, there's a story in the book of Joshua where God miraculously parts waters. He does that again in Joshua, right? He parts waters, they cross, and they literally have them go and get stones and they build an altar and they go, or a, a memorial, and they go, every time you see these stones, when your kids see them, when your grandkids see them, remember the story, all right? Tell the story, because we know how this works right? We know what happens here. You're going to forget, dang it. It's going to get hard and you're going to forget. When it gets hard, go stare at this rock, all right? Because that's when God delivered you, right? That's when he delivered you from your enemy. So Nehemiah is going to have this moment. Remember the Lord. John 16. I'm hopping around a lot. We're going to make it. It's going to be turbulent. John, John 16. You don't have to turn there. Verse 32, all right? Jesus is about to talk to his disciples, about to have some of the realest talk you can have. He says, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. Basically, what he's saying here is the hour is coming when my closest friends are gonna run. You're gonna abandon me, all right? Each to his own home and will leave me alone. Check this. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Man, when everything goes wrong, when the people I'm trying to save are gonna kill me, when my best friends are supposed to have my back are nowhere to be found, I am not alone. The Father is with me. The presence of God is the power to keep moving. We put our stock in too many things that aren't 
God. Like, we just don't put our stock in the presence of the Lord, and we have been created. And I don't want to get on an emotional yelling tangent, so I want to be gentle, but I believe that God is inviting us to experience power in his presence for all of our stock, for all of our investment to be in the presence of God, not in man. As powerful as community is, like in the Lord first and foremost, that is why Jesus was able to say yes to the cross, like I think a million times. He knew he was gonna die. How many days did he have to say yes to that? Over and over, okay, yep, that's still the plan. That's still the plan. That's still the plan. Because the Father was with him. Remember the Lord when things get hard, when things get tough and you can't just grit your teeth through it. Like, remember the presence of God. Be with the Lord. Spend time with the Lord. All right. Point number three, (laughs) the promise, the promise of the Lord. All right. We're talking about the presence of God. Now let's look at the promise. Back to Nehemiah chapter four and look at verses 19 and 20. Nehemiah, I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. And the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. This is faith, right? There is a legitimate, this is like not a metaphorical battle. Like there is legitimate spears and swords and shields and breastplates, but not of righteousness, just like actual armor. There's like a war going on, right? This is a real moment. And he goes, our God, we are spread thin. If we're thinking strategically, we're not looking so hot, but our God will fight for us. In the moment of opposition, when opposition was at its highest, Nehemiah did not rely on logic. He relied on the promises of God. That is what gave him the faith and the courage to keep this going. God will fight for us. I imagine he thought about his heritage, right? The Israelites, the walls of Jericho. It never made sense to walk around a structure in hopes that it would fall, right? That is not logical. It doesn't change anything about the structure if you just walk around it. But God said, walk around that sucker seven times, it will fall. Like, right? When God makes a promise, he holds true to the promise. Nehemiah knew the Israelites were a people of this word called covenant that God had told them, I am with you. If you'll turn to me, my presence is for you, with you, I will deliver you. So when opposition was at its greatest, Nehemiah could say, remember the Lord. He will fight For us, the promises of God gave him the power to keep pushing through. I want to revisit John 16. 32, we just read, right? I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. Listen to this. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world, you will experience tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There's these moments where I get so caught up in the present that I don't understand what God is up to, what he's doing. And this passage just ministered to my heart today. What we are doing here, the toil of our work, the hardship of life, the tensions that we're living in, the friction we feel with friendships and the brokenness of our culture, wherever we're feeling discouraged and we're feeling opposition, like, please hear me. Jesus is coming back. 
And that's a thing that I'm not comfortable with because eternity freaks me out. But the promise of the gospel is that Jesus is not done. That this is not it. This is not the only thing. That when opposition is at its highest, we know that we can keep laboring, that we can keep pursuing the Lord and loving people and leading people to Jesus and restoring brokenness and meeting people where their needs are at and meeting needs. We can do all of that because it is not in vain because this life is not the period. Like this is not the end. This is a speck on the timeline of eternity. This is the hope. Guys, if Jesus was lying about that part, this is all useless. We're banking on the fact that eternity is 100% legitimate. And if eternity is 100% legitimate, then none of this is in vain. How can we let temporary, because we let it because it's easy, because it's really hard to face opposition. But think about it, the logic of it, to let temporary opposition, pain and difficulty and, and all these things and, and like in cultural idols, to deter us from the hope of Jesus. Like, we can't let that happen. Like, if eternity is real, if the promise of Jesus is real, hey, you will experience opposition. You will. Jesus is like, this isn't one of those verses you put on your fridge. Hey, it's gonna be hard. Like, all right, take heart. This is not the end. I have overcome the world. We need Christians, we need followers of Jesus that understand that Jesus has overcome the world. He's overcome it. Like the difficulty you're in, the things that are hurting you the most right now, temporary, promise you, so temporary. And in a hundred billion years, as freaky as that is, you'll look back and go, I don't remember that at all because I've been in the glory of Jesus for longer than I thought was possible. And apparently it's not gonna end anytime soon, right? The promise of Jesus is that he has overcome. So we come into his following God as we're fasting together, praying together, seeking his presence. I just, I wanted to encourage you, take heart. You will experience opposition. One, the presence of God is accessible. There is, I promise you, there is more at the table no matter where you're at on the spiritual spectrum. There is more of God to be had. His presence is available. And two, his promise is powerful. He has promised he has overcome the world. He has overcome the world. Last thing I want to point out in the story of Nehemiah. You know, I like superhero movies. I geek out about those. I like them. But there's something really uh, innately kind of like incorrect about superhero movies, right? It tells you that it's all about one person, right? Like the one person's got to save everything. But the truth of the story of Nehemiah, even though it's called Nehemiah and it's written by Nehemiah and he's sort of the central figure, is Nehemiah did not go about building these walls by himself. <laughs> like, he didn't go, oh God, you called me to restore Jerusalem, so I'll go and I'll, just, I'll build this all alone, right? One of the first steps he does is he starts building with other people. They withstand opposition together. That is a really important piece of this story. We are not in this journey alone. If you feel alone, it's an illusion. It's deception from the enemy. You are not alone. God has designed us to gain courage and power from doing life together. It's the story of Jesus calling disciples. It's the story of the disciples linking arms and going, and, and going on mission together. Even when Jesus sends people out to share the gospel, he sends them out in pairs. He said, don't do it alone. Do it with somebody else. Like, there is so much power in that. So every week when I put you in this terrible, awkward position to circle up your chairs and get to know people and be like, all right, I'm so-and-so, my major's this, or I work here, or I'm from here. Here's how God spoke to me, Ugh, you know. Whatever that's <laughs> happening, eventually, right, and I think we've seen some power in it, 
But eventually, I think that this time that we're about to enter into will be a beacon of hope where we hear from our brothers and sisters that life is hard, but there's hope in the Lord. And here's how God is speaking to me. I was really talking to Sean uh, just this morning. He goes, I'm gonna say it my own way, okay? He goes, your sermon stunk, but our conversation was great. That's basically what he said. No, what he really said was, hey, I didn't really sense God saying anything as you were preaching, but when we got in our groups, God really spoke to me. And I'm like, bam, that's the thing. That is what we're after. I cannot preach good enough time and time again. It's so hard for me, all right? (laughs) But I believe we're designed to come alive in community. And right off the bat, thank you for those that have taken courageous steps to do it. Because I know it's weird. We're not used to this in church. But I think God has so much force when we do this together. Nehemiah didn't build a wall together. Jesus didn't even save the world by himself. The salvation part, yes. But the discipleship part, that was a big piece too, right? The church. It's a community. We do this together. So I want to give us a few questions to reflect on, per usual. And I really want us to go go deeper together, okay? So we're going to do this thing where we take a few minutes to reflect personally. And I just want to make this so clear. Make this your living room, Okay? If in your living room, if you're with the Lord, you'd walk around like I do, walk around. If you'd move your chair around, if you'd sit on the floor, do that. Like, you don't have to stay in these stiff rows if you don't want to. Can I get a head nod of affirmation? Do what you want, all right? Connect with the Lord. That's the purpose. Not to look cool, not to fit a certain mold, not to do the church thing, but to, to connect with the Lord, blah, blah, blah. All right, here's the questions. What opposition are you facing? I really invite you to think about this. We're gonna be playing some slow, nice music. And as it's playing, allow yourself to imagine just to reflect on your life. Hey, what real opposition you're facing? I promise you, you're facing it. I don't know where it is, but you are. So if you're like, ah, not a lot. I'm like, okay, pray a little bit more, reflect a little bit more, think about it. Number two, what is a step you can take into the presence of God this week? This is always the first step. The presence of God. Think about a way that you can practically step into the presence of God. Number three, how can the promise of Matthew 16, to take heart, I've overcome the world, encourage and empower you? That feels like vague and uh, like a conference, encourage and empower. But what I mean is, how can the promise that he's overcome the world shape the way you live? Like, how can it affect the way you make your decisions, the way you seek the Lord, the way you love people, Okay. Those are three questions. If three is too much for like a five-minute thing, uh, think about one of them. I'm going to allow us some time to personally reflect, and uh, I'll come back up and dismiss us to, to get in groups if you're willing. If you're not, if that's uncomfortable for you, totally cool. Okay, do your thing. Um, we're going to play some music, take five minutes to pray, and, and just go for it. Really reflect on this, and uh, I'll come back up and dismiss us to get in our groups and potentially get communion as well.